Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. We're like a week from the book coming out, and I've been going through a, a list of people who have been very influential to me, people that I quote in the book, people that I, I reference, people who uh, have inspired my thoughts. And Jim Kunstler is at the very top of that list. One of the guys who I think has spoken out bravely, sometimes admittedly controversially, and I, I think you'll probably get a little bit of that here in this. But one of those guys who's worth a full listen, and particularly where you uh, disagree, worth contemplation, right? I really uh, admire him a lot and have enjoyed the time that we've been able to spend together and just the advice and wisdom and insight that I've gotten from him over the years. And so Jim and I, he was generous enough to sit down and and chat. This is kind of a fun one. We'll uh, keep doing this kind of stuff. Go out and get that book. You got one week. I just got a notice from the publisher today that they're leaving the warehouse and on the way. So if you got one, keep your eyes open in the mail. It could show up anytime. Take care, everybody. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Rowan with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. One of the books that uh, has been most influential to me in my life is a book called The Long Emergency. It was, I don't want to say a follow-up or a sequel, but it it certainly fell in line of thought uh, with the geography of nowhere. Uh, The author, Jim Kunstler, is a guy that I've gotten to know now over the years. He's been on the podcast, I think more than anybody else. I consider him a, a good friend. I asked him if he'd be willing to come back on and, and give us an update, and he agreed. So, Jim, welcome back to the Strong Downs Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I knew vaguely, but I forgot, and maybe we should just start with this at the top, that you've been working on a follow-up to The Long Emergency, which is, is what I really want to discuss today. Is it too early to preview that? Should I? Uh, are you ready to well, talk I don't about know. it? In the course of our conversation, you know, listeners will learn enough about it to, you know, understand where I'm coming from. By the way, th- there was an earlier kind of quote follow up to the lung emergency, a book called Too Much Magic. Too Much Magic, right. Which I published in 2012. And, and the theme of that was uh, wishful thinking and technology. And we had just entered this period of uh, the most extreme wishful thinking that just about any culture could go through. Uh, So that was a bad coincidence because people didn't want to hear about wishful thinking while they were thinking wishfully. We're going to talk again next spring when your book comes out. But The Long Emergency, published in 2005, is that right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. You lay out in there this this long emergency. and, And the fascinating thing is that I feel like, and I think you agree, we're living through it Give us a quick overview of what the long emergency is, and then I'd like to delve into uh, some very specific things that have been in the news lately. So would you mind? No, not at all. Um, In the last chapters of The Geography of Nowhere, I reflected on our problems with petroleum and how that was liable to affect the living arrangements that we have in America. And so some years later, uh, it was becoming obvious that the oil situation was growing a little more desperate. And between the publication of those two books, a whole bunch of oil geologists, senior oil geologists, started retiring out of the 
major oil companies and publishing their dark and secret thoughts about where that was all going. The upshot of that was the, the peak oil story. Now, the peak oil story has changed a lot in the last 10 years, and largely because of what people call the shale oil miracle. The bottom line is, the situation hasn't changed that much. It's, it's been extended a little bit. The long emergency has become a little bit longer. But uh, we still have tremendous problems with not only our fossil fuel supply, but the whole relationship between fossil fuels and our way of life, especially the way that we inhabit the landscape. The conclusion I came to was we're going to have to change our living arrangements probably pretty drastically. The American people really don't want to do that for reasons that are understandable because of what I call the psychology of previous investment. We've put all of our wealth into this infrastructure for daily life and you know we just don't want to change it much or, or leave it behind or, or reform it. We're probably going to be dragged kicking and screaming into a new disposition of things. And I also wrote a four-book series of uh, four novels about what life in the future not too many decades ahead would look like. And I think the bottom line of that is, you know, I expect we're going to be going medieval. I know that's a pretty harsh thing for people to process. And I don't mean we're going to necessarily be you know, walking around with little leather helmets on and, you know, with, with uh, hand tools grubbing around in the soil. Although I think that we are going to be, more people are going to be working in agriculture for sure. You know, we're going to have what I would call a timeout from technological progress and from the lifestyles associated with it. You know, we're also going to have a lot of, a lot of trouble with everything that uh, the concept of money conceptualizes and encompasses. The World Made by Hand novels, if people haven't been here with us for a while, uh, I think we did interviews on the last three. Some of my favorite books, I really enjoyed them. Thank you. Yeah. The whole operative thing that you helped me grasp was that this was a long emergency with the emphasis on Yeah, I didn't on call long. it long for nothing. <laughs> right, exactly. And I, I think often, you know, we step back and, and look at these systems and they're like, we're like, this is so fragile. It's It's got to fall apart. But yet- we see kind of rescue after rescue. I want to talk about that shale oil miracle because I go to church every week and I pray for a shale oil miracle. Um, I don't know about you, <laughs> but recently in the news, there have been these creeping defaults. I think it's kind of surprised some people, which, you know, if they've been listening to you, they're not surprised. Can you talk a little bit about what underlies this miracle and why these defaults now were not only predictable, but, but why they maybe signal a shift? Yeah, it's not too hard to understand. And, you know, most people are content if the price of gas just stays sort of stable and fairly low, and they don't really look into it much more after that. But think of it this way. There's two different kinds of oil. There's the old oil and the new oil. The old oil is the conventional oil, and the new oil is shale oil, deep water oil, and other things. Well, the old oil worked like this. You know, you stick a, a pipe into the ground, and the oil comes out under its own pressure. Each well cost about $400,000 in today's dollars. The uh, well will produce for decades and it'll produce thousands of barrels a day for decades. That's the old oil. The new oil, oil, shale oil in particular, 
the wells cost between six and twelve million dollars a piece. They produce for maybe three years. Their production falls off by generally more than sixty percent after the first year, and after about three or four years, they're done. They produce about mm, 100, 150 barrels a day, not thousands of barrels a day. It's a very different equation. And the bottom line of that is that this oil is not particularly economical. That is, it doesn't really pay for itself. It's not worth getting out of the ground, even though you need it. And so a lot of companies are going bankrupt producing it because they can't produce it at a, at a profit. There's There's a lot of propaganda in the industry right now that is claiming that they can make a profit at lower prices, but I don't think that's being borne out by the statistics. There have been recently, in fact, uh, a lot more increasing number of bankruptcies among the smaller companies. And the other problem with the shale oil is that it was almost entirely dependent on ultra-low interest rate loans from investors. Now they've spent 10 years demonstrating that they can't make a profit doing this. And so the investors are getting shy and they don't want to invest it anymore. And unless they get a whole lot of money to continue their operations, they're not going to be able to keep the production levels up. And uh, so production is flat now, and I believe it's going to be falling. And I think when it does fall, it's going to fall pretty swiftly. And I think the unraveling of the shale oil industry is going to be pretty fast. I, I, you know, there are other things that might happen. It's conceivable that the government could nationalize it. Of course, the the, rec the historical record is that nationalized oil companies tend to not do that well. You know, uh, there's Venezuela, uh, Mexico, you know, these are examples of countries that have done that. And uh, they, they just don't really run them as well as private companies that need to make a profit or need to have some kind of a profit incentive. So that's where that's going. My, my guess is that the shale oil industry is going to be over by 2025, probably, at least as, in the way that we know it today. You know, we've had a nice extension of our current way of life, but I, I think things are wobbling quite a bit now. The shale oil thing has always felt to me like kind of the perfect application of modern economic theory where if you just shove enough money through there, you can get economic activity happening. Like you can make stuff happen, but eventually if not enough money's coming out the other end, there's an end to the, how long that game can go on. Am I, am I misrepresenting that? Not at all. And there's a name for that, you know, diminishing returns. And so the longer you keep pounding sand down a rat hole, you know, the, the more you're basically going to exhaust your economy and your culture. And that's exactly what we're doing. It seems like we've had a couple years now where we've not been picking military fights with other countries. Uh, but as you and I sit here today, earlier this week, the one we have kind of poked a little bit, Iran, ostensibly the details are still coming out, uh, but was involved in some type of drone strike or ancillarily, or maybe we're just being told that, I don't know, on some Saudi oil fields. And my oil stocks, which I own a few, went up by over 20% earlier this week. They're back down a little bit now. What are we to make about the fragility of this international oil system we have? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, it was uh, basically an oil processing plant or a refinery, uh, and it was a very big one, supposedly hit by Houthi rebels from Yemen. 
I'm not really convinced that they have the military capability to do that. Other people have been writing. I, I wrote about it in my blog this week. Other people have been writing this week to tell me, no, that they, they really do have the capability. But I don't. I have no idea what kind of a satellite guidance system they might have used because they certainly don't put up satellites. So it's it's really hard to tell what's going on there. But, uh, you know, the news reports said a lot of strange things. Like, uh, in fact, President Trump said strangely that we were waiting for the Saudi intelligence to tell us what happened. And, you know, we supposedly have the best intelligence system in the world. Why are we waiting for them? It's a pretty murky thing. I, I think a substantial amount of the Saudi oil output was uh, taken out of service with that hit. There are mixed reports that they may be able to compensate for that with the redundancy that's built into the refinery system. In other words, the refineries have to be maintained and cleaned and fixed up periodically on a regular schedule. And so they have a kind of a parallel refinery system that they can switch over to in the same place, in the same installation. And so they've been able to switch over uh, some of their refining and production into that. So it may not be as big a hit to the oil supply as we thought at first. You know, there are other targets out there that are probably even more fragile and and would cause much more serious damage. For example, the uh, Ras Tanura terminal uh, in the Persian Gulf, which is out in the open water, uh, just offshore, and uh, that's where the tankers are actually loaded. And it's a huge complex. It's sitting out there, you know, like a sitting duck, and could be destroyed probably even more easily than the refineries were because I don't know that they they do have the redundancy built into that installation. So, yeah, it's pretty fragile. The other thing is that, uh, you know, at the customer end, we don't import that much Persian Gulf oil anymore, or at least Saudi Arabian oil, as we used to. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about that, too, because, you know, we're not energy independent. That's a load. I don't know why we keep saying that. It's probably just, you know, the the sheer amount of propaganda that's out there right now is pretty overwhelming. And it's very hard for people to tell the truth from from the BS. You know, we use about 20 million barrels a day and we we produce about 12 and a fraction. So, uh, you know, you do the math is pretty simple. We're We're still importing a lot of oil. The other thing about shale oil is that the type of oil that it is is ultra light sweet crude and it does not contain some of the heavier distillates that we uh, are absolutely indispensable for the american economy namely diesel fuel for trucking and aviation fuel which is sort of like kerosene and there's very little of that in shale oil so consequently because we have all this uh, ultra light oil and many of the other places in the world like arabia and and elsewhere have very heavy crudes, there's a lot of swapping that goes on. So we do export a lot of oil, a lot of uh, uh, light oil, and we also export the main distillate that it comes from, just gasoline. You know, we send that out of the country. But uh, we get heavier oils back in return, and our refineries are set up in such a way that, you know, they were built 40, 50 years ago, and they were built for heavier crudes and and the way the way the chemistry works 
we can't crack the lighter crudes with the equipment that we have. And the major oil companies, which mostly own the refineries, don't want to make the capital investment for new, new refineries. So that's a quandary. You know, the, the major oil companies, to some degree, probably deep down secretly know that they're in a sunset industry and they don't want to spend billions of dollars on new plant and equipment. So, you know, the whole thing is fraught with uh, quandaries. But getting back to a point I made earlier, at the customer end, the people who are getting most of the Persian Gulf oil are the people in Asia, namely China, Japan, North Korea, Taiwan, uh, the Philippines, etc. You know, it's a, a dangerous situation for them because this oil is coming through two choke points, the Straits of Hormuz in the Persian Gulf and the Straits of Malacca in Southeast Asia. You know, that whole supply line is going through these narrow choke points and could be uh, cut off very easily in the event of a lot of international mischief. That's a situation. Here in Minnesota, one of our major energy companies uh, with the, the large coal plants and the nuclear facilities is talking about being completely green in 20 years. So two, give them two decades. Where are you at with the green revolution and the idea that I'm going to put this out there as like the cultural narrative. Basically, we can continue doing everything we're doing now, driving, having uh, big screen TVs, processing our Bitcoin overnight, whatever it is uh, that's sucking up all this energy. We can continue to do that and more, but we'll just do it green. Uh, where are you at with that narrative? America's going to be very disappointed how that works out. It ain't going to happen. You know, we're not going to run uh, the interstate highway system, Walt Disney World, suburbia, all the stuff we're running now, uh, the U.S. military on any combination of uh, green alternative fuels. It just isn't going to happen. So the whole thing's a fantasy. Really what we have to do is downscale all of the activities in American life, including, you know, the distances that we travel, the scale of, of our living places, the, the scale of our cities, the scale of the corporate activity that we do, it's all going to have to get smaller and the population is going to have to get smaller. It, it's a terrible prospect, but it's probably true. And uh, we don't know how that's going to happen. It, it, it tends to conjure up a lot of unappetizing scenarios and uh, that's where we're going. Why are the simple things still so hard? You published this book almost a decade and a half ago. And, you know, we've been living through a lot of trauma and discomfort and anxiety. You would think that with this level of, you know, the long emergency in front of us, that maybe taking some of these baby steps, like walking instead of driving everywhere, would be easy. Why is it so difficult for us? I mean, do you have a sense of why? I don't think that that's exactly what's going on, the way you expressed it. I, I don't think that's really the picture. I don't think, I don't think Americans have been traumatized. Uh, I think they've been discomfited, and they, you know, there's certainly a lot of anxiety about w what's going on and where we're headed. But for sheer discomfort, they've been damaged economically and financially, and they've been punished financially. But... Um, Perhaps not enough. I don't mean that in a in a mean way, but in fact, we are just probably too comfortable. What what's really happened is that because of the economic and and financial pain that so far 
uh, has occurred, especially in the aftermath of the 2008 housing meltdown and, and all the problems people had keeping their houses and or getting thrown out. All of that discomfort has been expressed politically in what has turned out to be, you know, Donald Trump and in the insane behavior of the left. So, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of basically insane political behavior, and that's been the chief consequence so far. But it hasn't really prompted us to really seriously consider changing the way we live in this country. And as I said before, because of the psychology of previous investment, we're disinclined to even entertain the idea of, of changing. You know, there are too many people invested in too many suburban houses, in too many places that are sprawled out in the landscape, and uh, they're not going to change. They don't want to change the way they live there. Also, there's a big quandary about how this is going to happen. We, you know, when you think about how this might occur, uh, many people just leap to the idea that all the people who are living in suburbia will somehow move to Brooklyn, you know, or, or the better neighborhoods of Minneapolis. And I don't think it's going to happen that way. I, I maintain that the cities are going to get in as much trouble as the suburbs, just in a different way. And they are going to have to contract severely. There'll be big battles over who gets to occupy the parts of the city that retain their value, like the waterfronts and the, the old central cores. I think the action is going to be spreading to the small towns and to the small cities and the places that already exist in a scale that is consistent with the resource and energy realities of the future. People who, who think that uh, there's going to be this grand rush into the cities, I think are really misinformed and misled. I was in Washington state last week. The further west you go, the more incoherent our landscape becomes. Yeah, because it, you know, the further west you go, the more it just expresses the auto dependency that we right. you know, set out, set out on, as the template. Right. So I was at a conference with a bunch of planners as one of the stops. And this one guy got up and he said, uh, I've been working with this, uh, this developer. They have a thousand acres and it has 400 homes. And we're trying to retrofit this with a walkable downtown and a walkable neighborhood. What recommendation would you have for me? And I won't give you my answer, uh, but I'm guessing we're the same. So I'll, I'll give you an opportunity. <laughs> to answer that question for him. Yeah, my answer would be hire the jolly green giant to pick up the houses and move them all much closer together. And that would be the solution. But otherwise, you know, it, it's going to, it's a tough assignment because it really doesn't have the armature of a real town. The armature and the template there is suburban sprawl. And it's extremely hard to reform and to rectify. I know that there are a lot of thoughtful people and a lot of intelligent people out there who have been working on the retrofitting of suburbia. Personally, I don't think it's going to happen, or at least not very much. Some places may find a way to, to do something. On the whole, I think it has three destinies. It, it's going to be either slums or salvage or ruins. Apropos of what I said a few moments ago, uh, we're going to have a big problem with food production in this country because uh, industrial agriculture is not going to be able to continue the way it it works now any more than suburban, you know, the suburban commuting model is going to be able to continue. Uh, 
And so the places we live are going to have to have a much more meaningful relationship with food production and agriculture. And that's one of the reasons I think that uh, the small towns in America, especially in the in the parts of the country where where farming can be done, that these places are going to be probably the most favorable and promising places to think about making a life. That Western landscape, the Washington state, it feels like a really good example of when we were in 2008 and, and looking back maybe by the time we get to 2010 or 11, we were confident in saying that was a housing bubble. And in those places you had like price to income ratios of houses that historically would be somewhere around two uh, were up over six and seven. I was in Seattle last week and you're over seven again. And they're talking about the housing recovery and, and housing prices being high. And our, how, do we, how do we get more housing, affordable housing? Do we do rent control? I try to describe to them this mania that they're experiencing and how this is crazy. Can you tie this together? Because it, it feels like part of the same conversation, right? We, we save things in, in 2008 and we are resisting change. How tough is this going to be to go to a house price to income ratio that would be normal again? Well, it's really hard to tell how we're going to get out of this. About all I can say about what you're describing in Seattle and, and it's certainly going on other places is that it, it represents a kind of just uh, response to the, the sunsetting of the techno-industrial phase of history, by which I mean um, systems and, and the people who use them and work with them start to go kind of insane and become irrational. And, uh, you know, you're dealing with a system that's become profoundly dysfunctional and, and irrational. And, you know, when the inflection points are really crossed, when the thresholds are really crossed and, and we have to really start seriously making other arrangements, there's going to be no way to reform those, those systems. You know, we're really going to have to kind of start from a new place. What really might define that new start will be the 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 problems that we have with money, with with currencies, markets, financial markets, banks. You know, the whole banking and money system that we have now is in jeopardy. And so many of the matters that comprise the whole real estate industry are so tied into banking and its methods and its customs and its practices that um, – uh, you know, we're going to probably have to uh, rebuild the financial system or or a financial system that will be a lot simpler, perhaps much cruder. You know, it's not going to work the same way. And especially with debt, because debt is at the heart of the fragility of the financial system as we know it now. Right. Let, let me ask you about that, because the last couple of days in my news feed, I've seen these uh, statements about the Fed basically doing a, a save of the repo market overnight. Overnight market has been rising and the Fed's come in to buy. To me, this is one of those like, okay, this feels like a tremor. What's going on with that? Yeah, the repo market, you know, it's a pretty abstruse system, but it basically has to do with uh, banks and, and large uh, financial organizations covering each other's capital flows for very, very short periods of time overnight. Uh, when it starts to fail, then the whole system starts to expose its uh, weaknesses. And the, and what it mainly exposes is the fact that so many people can't pay back the money that they owe. 
And it's the first sign that there's this tremendous inability for the loans to to be uh, serviced. Yeah, it feels like to me, like it's it's literally the guy saying, hey, loan me a buck and I'll pay you back tomorrow. And you're saying, I don't trust you to have yeah. a buck tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. And then there are all the people who, you know, have 30-year loans and 10-year loans and 15-year loans and car loans and home mortgages and all these loans that are out there, all these business loans, all the high interest corporate uh, junk debt. You know, all this stuff basically represents huge bundles of loans that can't be paid back and will never be paid back. And once the repo market starts going, it starts, you know, that, that's a way of the tide going out and, and exposing the people who are swimming naked who can't pay back their loans. And it's the beginning of it. And every time the tide recedes enough for people to see that, it freaks out the markets. So, you know, it represents uh, quite a challenge. And we'll, we'll see if these tremors really represent something that's going to get a whole lot deeper going into the fall and winter. We don't get political here, but I, I do think there's some interesting things that intersect with public policy that are worth discussing. Because when Donald Trump ran for president, one of the things that he said that I'm like, yeah, that, that, that's true. He said the stock market and the markets in general were just a big, fat, ugly bubble propped up by easing and uh, low interest rates and upward distortions. Now that he's president, um, it's the greatest economy ever. He's calling now, after you know a decade of growth, for more an insurance policy, is what we're calling it now. To me, this feels like, again, trying to save the desperate move of trying to save something that's going down. Am I reading too much into this? Is that how you're seeing it? Yeah, I see it pretty much that way. And, you know, Trump has made the unfortunate basic mistake of taking ownership of a, an economy that has been janky for decades. You know, that's just a big blunder. It's sometimes with Trump, it's it's hard to tell whether he's dumb or, or shrewd or what. But this was not a that, that was a dumb move to take ownership of the stock market and say, oh, this is this is all because of me. And uh, yeah, I suppose it exposes some of his character flaws. You know, I didn't vote for the guy, but I didn't vote for his opponent either. I did vote for someone, though. That puts us in the same boat. I, <laughs> I wonder when you look at uh, the Dow over 30,000 and these kind of gyrations we've been going through, a lot of people equate the stock market with the economy, particularly now. What, what are they missing? What are they not grasping about that correlation? Well, that the economy is no longer based on producing things of value. The economy now has been financialized, which means it's based on uh, uh, swindling and, and fraud. It's an unfortunate thing for something like that to happen to a culture, but you know we did it, and we're going to be responsible for it, and uh, you know we're going to have to suffer the consequences. I've heard you say that, swindles and fraud. And, and here's the thing. You're a genius with words, but I think sometimes when people hear that, they think, you know, oh, that's just hyperbole. That's just Jim going on. It seems to me like this whole concept of like share buybacks and the fact that a huge percentage of our S&P 500 companies can't, don't have the cash flow to pay the interest on their debts. These are all like realities, right? That, that are being like propped up in this current system. Is that, that, is that what you mean by a swindle and a fraud? I'm basically. Well, that's part of the picture, but you know, even more concretely, there was a wonderful piece out on, uh, 
Pam and Russ Martin's uh, site, Wall Street on Parade, a few days ago, maybe maybe even yesterday. I'm not, I'm not quite sure because somebody sent me the clip. But it's a long story about uh, J.P. Morgan's and the recent accusations leveled against it for financial racketeering. And they assembled a list of the things that they have been convicted of just in the last uh, 10 years or so. They have paid unbelievable fines for their activities, like, you know, $2 billion fines, $500 million fines. There's a list of like eight or 10 things that are these enormous amounts of money that they've paid fines on. And none of the officers have gone to jail. And uh, so the the gist of the article was that uh, these people are may, may be subject to RICO prosecutions, which is the federal racketeering statute. Because after all, when you're caught doing something, a criminal activity, several times over, th- that, that makes a pattern. And the RICO statutes are all about a pattern of uh, criminal behavior. Uh, they have not been uh, punished enough for doing that. So, you know, we'll have to stand by and see how that rolls. The The theory is, of course, is that they pay enough money to the people in the government to make sure that they don't get prosecuted. And, and even today, there was a piece in the financial news that I, I'm not sure who was proposing it, but they they want to roll back many of the regulations that were put in after 2008 and uh, and they want to go even further in rolling them back. And I forget precisely which ones they were, but th- this hasn't stopped. And uh, pretty soon uh, something is going to break and then everybody will turn around and say, oh, well, we just didn't see it happening. We just were surprised. We're shocked. Right. Dave Collum, who I know you know, I listened to a podcast with him and I think he said he was on going to be on yours. Uh, yeah, for- I recorded one with him about it. Mm, 10 days ago. Sweet. I enjoy his year in review and and, uh, follow him on Twitter. He had a tweet the other day where it listed all the central banks and which ones were easing. And it was every single one. How did we get to this point where even like the ECB, which is supposed to be the one in theory, like most detached from what's going on, they've been printing money for years. They're not the most detached. They've been the most active. Yeah, they have. Yeah. Uh, you know, generating funny money. I think in theory, they were created to basically not do that, right? Yeah. Yeah. It seems like the whole easing conversation is a lot like the shale oil conversation earlier, where it's just, if we just pump enough money into it, activity will happen. And that, that is a good, that falls short of something, right? You see, this, the, the banks are not really issuing money. They're issuing credit. It's not exactly the same as issuing money. And the problem is, is that if all you issue is credit, uh, at the other end of that credit, which is a loan, uh, you know, is there's a borrower and there's, there's somebody who is lending. Somebody is going to be stuck with the responsibility for that loan. The loans don't go away and the effects of the loans don't go away. So it's not money per se that they're issuing, it's obligations. And there are too many people who are obligated with too many obligations that can't be met, which is to say that there are too many loans that can't be repaid. And so they're trying to repay old loans with new loans. And it's basically a feedback loop that is probably not going to end well. 
let me take it to the next level then. I know you've written a little bit about the latest economic fad, the modern monetary theory. Yeah, a little. Is this just like the the peak delusion in the long emergency? Is there something more to it? Part of it is, I think the genuine part is trying to attack this debt thing and saying, let's basically like get rid of the debt and just keep the money flowing. Let's just make a bunch of money, not have to do it through debt and just keep the money flowing. And that will keep all this growth happening and economic activity. Is that a gimmick of just a higher order or is there something else there? Yeah, it's exactly what it is. It's a higher order gimmick. The the bottom line of uh, MMT is that you don't have to worry about the loans ever being paid back, which is BS. Th- their position is that sovereign governments can create, quote, money uh, to their heart's content as long as they want to. And like I said, it's not really money they're, they're generating. It's loans and it's debt uh, that pretend to be money. And so that in itself is problematic. I want to ask you about the Green New Deal. But before we do that, I, I want to say that and I've told you this before, you were the first person, and this was you know mid-2000s, writing about climate change, where when I read it, I thought, yes, that, that's the way this should be discussed. It was very, not only deferential to science, but deferential to the, the probabilistic nature of the science, right? And I think you even called it like climate weirding as opposed to at the time the term was like global warming or something like that. Yeah, I actually did not say that, but Oh, go go uh, ahead. Say what you say have, it your way. Well, I, I don't have a conventional sense of what's going on with the climate. I there are plenty of things you can measure. Uh, one of the problems with our culture generally is we have this uh we we operate under this fallacy that if we can measure enough stuff, we can control everything. And that's just a delusion. That's always been my problem. Right. Keep going. That's been a big part of the climate change argument. These days, I'm just not so sure anymore. I'm, I, I'm not sure about basically all of it anymore. <laughs> a, a lot of what we're seeing now may have more to do with um, sunspot cycles and maunder min- minimums and, and other cyclical cosmic events. I've never been completely convinced that it mattered whether the human race was causing climate abnormalities or or not. I I think the bottom line of it simply is we're we're not going to do anything about it one way or the other. We're just going to have to adapt and we're just going to have to roll with it, whatever it is, you know, whether it means that uh, the planet warms up and uh, that creates enormous problems or whether it means uh, that the Gulf Stream uh, changes so that uh, many of the countries that depend on it uh, are going to have to make uh, new arrangements for daily life. And those are enormous changes to have to contend with. But these kinds of things happen on this planet. They've happened before. You know, we've had ice ages, we've had warmings, and uh, something seems to be up. We've been very fortunate to have lived the last 10,000 years in a warming period. Nobody ever guaranteed it was going to last forever. I'm skeptical about uh, many elements of the whole story, but I understand why people would be freaked out about it because our our systems for daily life are now so complex and, and fragile and technical that they can't really bear any, any change, and uh, it's going to be very hard for people to adapt 
to uh, a new regime, a new climate regime, and almost certainly not under the terms that we currently enjoy, you know, the, the living arrangements that we currently enjoy. So it's understandable that people will be freaked out by it. I'm always told that the three things you're in a sense required to believe by the uh, climate activists is like first climate change is happening. Second or is real second it's happening now. And third humans are contributing to it. And I've never had a problem with any of those three things. Yeah. To, uh, by the way, let me, let me say to me that it's still possible. I mean, I, right, I, right. I, I wouldn't argue that humans are causing it or not. Right. Right. Culturally, when things are difficult, we come up with zombie movies and uh, apocalypse movies and, and different narratives to describe like the end times, right? Um, well, that's what we're doing in our time. I mean, you know, they didn't have movies uh, during, you know, the last uh, climate change episode, which was when, uh, you know, we went into the little ice age. Right, right. Yep. I mean, you could go back and see the Mayans say the world will end. It feels like we're predisposed to respond to stress with uh, the shaman who is is yelling about the end of times. Well, I'm I'm kind of doing that. I mean, people people oh, yeah, can accuse me no. of the same thing. Right, right, yeah. I just don't have a theological bent to it. Right, and and, and you know what I'm proposing is fairly straightforward and simple. You know, we got to change our living arrangements uh, that in a way that comports with the circumstances that are coming at us, you know, and, and if the circumstances are that, uh, you know, the, the Gulf, Gulf stream is going to shut down or, 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 you know, it's going to get hot or cold or, or, or something, you know, that's a pretty, pretty big problem. And, uh, you know, and good luck. When I read the green new deal, I really struggled with the absence of simple things. Everything seemed like it was, let me put it in, in like the kindest terms. We have this pending apocalypse, ergo, all of our actions must be scaled to the grandness of the apocalypse we're facing. Ergo, reshape this, reshape that, redo all of this. And I thought, why can't we just have corner stores again? Um, well, I think we're both saying the same things. I, I actually agree that we do have to, we do have to make severe and drastic changes in the way we live. Uh, the difference is that uh, I'm not a techno-narcissist. You know, I don't think that there are technological rescue remedies that are going to allow us to keep on doing what we're doing, or even partially. You know, I think that we're just going to, we are going to have to live much more locally, and we're going to have to live, the standard of living is probably going to be nowhere near as grand as it is now. And uh, But, you know, there are all kinds of adaptations you can make to that. People found plenty of ways to entertain each other and themselves before there were flat screen TVs and, you know, 24 seven, 1000 cable channels. People could put on puppet shows for each other too, you know, and that, that wouldn't require so much, uh, fossil fuel. Uh, you know, people can just get together around the dinner table, which they don't do anymore if they want to be entertained. Right. It, it was one of the, I think more beautiful things about uh, the world made by handbooks was just uh, the fact that life was presented as difficult, but also having a lot of meaning and beauty. It actually kind of prompted me to seek those things out in my own life. I, I know you play music uh, with some friends and uh, I've done that for years as well. Are these the pursuits that 
we should be, you know, going after as opposed to high speed rail across the entire country? Yeah, well, we're not going to do high speed rail. We, you know, we missed the boat on that. We might have done it at a time when it was possible to borrow the amount of money that we needed to do that. But now that we're up against the debt wall, we can't do that anymore. I'm I'm curious though, what what kind of music are you playing with whom? Oh, I'm well. I'll give you the joke. What what is the the one guy surrounded by five musicians? What do you call him? Drummer. Yeah, he's a drummer. That's that's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As a percussionist. So you're playing rock and roll with a local bunch um, of guys. Actually, this uh, yeah, I do a little bit of that. the The one regular gig that I've got, and this is going to be kind of funny. Once a year, I'm part of a group that goes and plays Christmas tunes at a local elementary school. And I'm telling you, I played music for decades, decades, like, I mean, every weekend, three weekends a month for decades. And this is the most fun gig I have. These, these little kids at 830 in the morning singing along to Rudolph and just like, they're so into it. They have fun doing music at the local level. Even when you're not getting paid, it's just a great time. It's just fun. You know, I do something almost, uh, almost exactly the same here. Well, the, what it is, is every year the local uh, arts association in the adjoining town of Cambridge, New York, puts on a Christmas breakfast on a Saturday. They have two seatings. You know, they have like the, the 8 o'clock and the 11 o'clock. And the kids do these dance routines and they sing things and they, you know, they do Christmas-related stuff. And we provide the music. And um, uh, we are the, uh, the Cambridge uh, Contra Dance Band. And it's just the most charming event you can imagine. First of all, it's held in in an old opera house that dates from the 1870s that has hardly been changed at all uh, since it was first built. And so the the auditorium is it's it's a small auditorium and it's charming as you can imagine. Uh, it's got a little balcony and it's got this wonderful painted backdrop at the back of the proscenium uh, stage. You know, it's just a beautiful room. And we're so used to playing and doing things in rooms with, you know, terrible fluorescent lighting and, and crummy, low acoustical tile ceilings. And, and to be in this room with, with uh, you know, a couple of hundred people and a, a half of them children is just a, a wonderful, charming experience. Yeah. I'm going to be devil's advocate for a sec. I think some people hear your message and maybe get a snippet of it here and there and assume that you are a very unhappy person. You must be looking at the world. And they say this about me sometimes too. Boy, you're just not very optimistic about the future. I feel like I'm full of optimism and hope. I feel like I see this beautiful future. And I, I sense that in you too, in our interactions, that, that you're a, a really happy guy living a f- very full life. How is this long emergency actually a way for us to get to a better life. Well, as you said a few minutes ago, you know, you read those novels that I wrote and and there was something in them that that made you want to go to that place. You know what it is, I think is is the idea and for some people maybe even the memory of living a far less mediated existence where you your contact with reality and the things around you, you know, is not mediated by all kinds of electronic barriers and and filters and things that uh, uh, prevent you from, from, you know, feeling what your part of the universe is like. And uh, I think that we're moving into a period of history where life is going to become a lot more direct for people. And I'm personally not afraid of that. I live fairly 
directly on a, at the scale that I'm at. I've worked out a few things. I feel okay about the world and, and my place in it. And um, I'm a cheerful guy. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There's another thing, though, that people ought to keep in mind. You know, uh, my one of my favorite quotes from literature is when Samuel Beckett said, nothing is funnier than unhappiness. <laughs> so, you know, a, a lot of this is really a kind of comedy. We can't forget that. Right. I know it sounds a little sick, but it's true. Right. People can read you at counselor.com. Yeah, uh, I publish a blog Mondays and Fridays. Um I do a podcast about once a month myself, where I, I am hopefully uh, more articulate than I've been in this hour. Do you've been fantastic? I didn't sleep too well last night for some reason. I uh, actually I know the reason. Every Tuesday night is the contra dance band practice. We have a potluck dinner afterwards, and I end up eating dinner at like eight thirty at night, which keeps me up for the rest of the night. <laughs> and uh, and so that's that's why I didn't get a good night's sleep last night, and it always happens. So. You know, maybe maybe I should just not eat at the uh, potluck or something. You told me about this potluck earlier, and I, I noted that I didn't realize in New York they had potlucks. I thought that was something we did here. Did you have hot dish? Uh, we don't have hot dish, per, you know, per the Minnesota version right. of hot dish. Yeah. Uh, and by that, I mean mainly we don't take canned vegetables and cover them with uh, cream of mushroom soup and fried onions. <laughs> You're missing out. That's not how we roll here, uh, you know. We, we mostly actually, you know, have fresh vegetables and, and decent uh, free-range chicken and, you know, stuff like that. And, and not in a kind of boutique way either, just because a lot of people have that stuff. I have chickens. Uh, they're not meat birds, but I have a lot of, uh, you know, I, I get my own eggs and I have a large garden. And I spent the last three weeks making a lifetime supply of jam. Yep. You, your garden's very impressive. I I am I have garden envy of you. Ah, yeah. yeah. Well, it takes a lot of uh, dedication to get it right. Yeah, absolutely. I want to tell people because Strong Dance is a membership organization. We get like forty percent of our revenue from people who give us five bucks, ten bucks a month, and and it's a it's a big deal. Allows us to do a lot uh, that we otherwise wouldn't be able to do. I know you have a Patreon site. I subscribe to your Patreon site. God um, bless you. No, I just, it, it's one of those things where I, f I feel like artists of the past were always supported by people and we don't maybe have that today. And I feel like we do have these platforms that allow people to give a little bit of money and help people who are doing great work. I feel like you're doing great work. I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about the Patreon site and why that's been a, a great platform. Oh, thanks. Well, you know, it came under attack a bit uh, a year ago when Patreon deplatformed some right-wing guy. A lot of people, and the, especially the dark web people, got ticked off about it, and they started telling people not to not to use Patreon anymore and not to give to it. And you know, a lot of those people, who are people I admire generally, like you know Jordan Peterson and and Dave Rubin and uh, Sam Harris and others, I admire those people, but. You know, they could afford to uh, uh, step away from Patreon, and, and the, the smaller fish like me can't. I really need to use the Patreon system, and the book business isn't what it used to be. I, I don't know what people think it is now, but, you know, it's, it's really become kind of a mugs game. So, uh, Amen to you know, that. I depend yeah. on Patreon, and, and I hope people will not be discouraged from using it until 
the intellectual dark web guys have been promising to build uh, an alternative kind of system that will do substantially the same thing, but they've been promising that for two years and they haven't uh, done it yet. So for now, those of us who are not raking in enormous n amounts of cash and need to pay the light bill are depending on Patreon. Thank, thank goodness for it. You posted a while back one of your royalty checks from. Yeah. You've written some seminal books, some books that you know I got. I've written like twenty three books, and uh, you know, and I, I do not have a big flow of royalties coming in. Right, but you you've written some books that I mean I got during my university days. I mean these these yeah. are important books as an American. The idea that our the people who have contributed creatively to our culture and have added what I think is, is a lot to our conversation would somehow be asked to like live out their days on like, you know, a hundred dollars every couple months in royalty checks is obscene. And, and I am happy to, to do the little bit that I do. It's not much, but I think the idea of Patreon is that if a whole bunch of people do a little bit, it actually adds up to something substantive. Yeah, my last royalty check for the geography of nowhere, I think, was 360 bucks, which uh, yeah, I'd make more money if I was a junior high school janitor. Right, right, right. I think a lot of these tools that we use, I mean, I'm looking at Uber uh, you know, as a way to exploit uh, workers and drive down prices for consumers. And you, know, you can say, yay, I get my Amazon package. But the other half of that is if we want to be good about this, there's ways to do this well. And I just, I'm, I'm thankful you set up the Patreon page. And I guess if there's anybody still hanging with us on this interview that, that really care about, uh, but Jim and, and really care about any people who are doing creative work, uh, support it. You know, I, I think it's important. Uh, thanks for that. Thanks for the support. Yeah. Well, Hey, I love you. <laughs> I don't know if people say that to you often, but you, uh, you mean a lot to me. And, uh, there've been times in my life when, uh, I've run into you and, and you've just been very generous and kind. So I just want to say thank yeah, you. And, thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time to, to chat with us today. It's always a pleasure. I wish you didn't live so far away. We could play in the same band. Uh, you know how much fun that would be. <laughs> Yeah, because I play rock and roll, too, on Wednesday nights. That's tonight. Oh, really? Oh, sweet. Yeah. Well, have have fun rocking out. I, I've got these two kids, and they've, uh, they're have they 15 and 12 now. They, they've crimped my, my rocking style, right? Like, I, I can't do the, the clubs every weekend the way we did before they were born. But I'm, I'm ready to transition in the old guys band, you know? Which, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I watched them for years, and that was always looked like fun, and I think I'm ready to do that. Well, do either of them play an instrument now? Oh, yeah. Chloe, my oldest one, uh, is musically just a savant. I mean, she plays piano she and violin. She sings beautifully, but she won't. Um, she's Aww. Yeah, she's, she's very shy. But she also is a percussionist, and I got to tell you, She's ambidextrous like her dad, and she got assigned a trap set last year, this boring piece. She kind of complained about how boring it was. And then I went to the concert, and I watched her. And in the middle of the song, she just started, she just switched hands. She just started doing it backward, like playing left-hand lead instead of right-hand lead. Wow. And, and yeah, nobody noticed. I mean, like, I don't think anybody in the crowd noticed, but dad noticed, and I could not have been prouder. Yeah. I'm like, this kid's, That's wild. This kid's amazing. Yeah. 
Well, actually, I have to schlep over to North Adams, Mass. now in my car because, you know, i got to have a car, too, like everybody else in America. It's a requirement. The way things are set up, i got to schlep over to North Adams and, and deliver my guitar to uh, the guitar repairman, or at least one of my guitars. Tell me what you got. What's your, what's your guitar? Uh, it's a Martin D18 yeah. uh, from 1986, yeah. and the binding is starting to come off the bottom of the, the body. Yeah, well, take care of that, baby. I got to. All right. Thank you, Jim. Okay, well, Chuck, it's been a pleasure. We'll talk again soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And thank you to Jim, and, and thanks to everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.